May all beings be happy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings be free from harm. May all beings love life. May all beings awaken. Welcome to another QQ Audio podcast. I'm DC Puba of QQ Audio and QQ Archives, doing our bit to help preserve the legacy of Shunryu Suzuki and those whose paths cross his and anything else that comes to mind. I pray that you and yours are safe and comfortable, free from economic hardship, and able to get out and do whatever it is you want within the limitations of the universal precept of do as little harm as possible. So uh, today we have a guest, uh, Peter Coyote. And... uh, Peter uh, is a Zen teacher, uh, a Zen student, and uh, you may know him as an actor, a writer. Uh, If you knew him a long time ago, uh, you might uh, have known him as uh, uh, a digger. (laughs) Uh, He was an actor a long time ago, too. In, uh, you know, theater. Anyway, we get into all that. We get into everything. I don't have to go on about it. Uh, Look, if you want to know about Peter as an actor, just go to imdb.com and uh, write Peter Coyote. And then you'll see he's been in like a zillion, I think he said 160 films. And um, if you want to know about... uh, Peter as a Zen teacher, you can go to uh, petercoyote.com, P-E-T-E-R-C-O-Y-O-T-E. Um, and um, uh, also, you know, there's a section on cuke.com for Peter. So just go to cuke.com, C-U-K-E.com, write, write coyote or Peter Coyote in the site search box, and you'll see his page. And I can see I have to update it. I will do that before you hear this. And uh, he's going to, you know, we talk about various things, but he's going to talk about his books, and I am going to mention them now. Um, One thing... uh, First, I'll say is that he has a book supposedly coming out March 19th, 2024. Uh, I assume it will. Uh, But, you know, sometimes they put these dates and uh, it it comes a little later. But, um, yeah, Uh, so this is called Zen in the Vernacular, Things as it is. And, and he'll talk about that. Uh, the uh, first book I'm aware of of his is Sleeping Where I Fall, A Chronicle. <laughs> that is a cool book. Uh, that's sort of like uh, about his life. Then uh, there's The Lone Ranger and Tonto Meet Buddha, Masks, Meditation, and Improvised Play to Induce Liberated States. So that's, uh, you know, a paperback, a Kindle, and an audible audiobook. And I'm sure he reads, is uh, actually, they all are. Uh, uh, he reads his own because uh, he probably reaches more people with his voiceover than anyone. He might. He's, he's a really big voice. So he does all of Ken Burns' films. Oh, yeah. And then he did a book of poetry called Tongue of a Crow. And he, he was involved with some others. Oh, yeah. The Rain Man's Third Cure and a Regular Education. <laughs> yeah, he's written a lot of stuff there. So, anyway. Uh, oh, I see here he... Um, he narrated Zen Flesh and Bones, and you know he narrated uh, um, 
Zen mind, beginner's mind. Okay. So, uh, look, that's enough about Peter. Uh, he's, um, his, oh, well, I should say, I, what's his Zen group called? Wild Dog Zen? Something like that. Anyway, if you just go to petercoyote.com, um, you know, there's a section on Buddhist priest, activist. Oh, <laughs> I didn't mention that. Yeah, Peter is really into engaged Buddhism. Uh, and, and you'll see that in his uh, upcoming book, uh, uh, Vernacular Zen. Voice artist, uh, writer, and actor. Those are the, you know, on uh, petercoyote.com. Those are the sections. So, look, that's enough of that stuff. So, when you hear the bell, if you're of such a mind, hit pause and meditate or whatever for as long as you wish. And when you're ready to come back, hit unpause. And we'll be here to hit the bell to end our meditation and give Peter Coyote a call. Hello. Peter. Yes, sir. How are you doing? What are you up to right now? Well, this moment, um, you know, I got married on Saturday. I did not third, know. Third, I didn't know that. Third time is the charm. Yeah. To a wonderful woman I wish I'd met when I was 40, except I would have messed it up. Right, right. Right. So, so she was, she's retired, retired nurse, and who was also in charge of all the uh, Napa County nursing. She was an executive. Mm. Um, so she was great there. And we just get along like a house of fire. It's completely stress-free. We can talk about anything, no drama, and uh -huh. we spend most of our time laughing. Uh -huh. That's so the good. other thing I'm doing is I'm doing the most boring line by line edit of the book that I sent you. Yeah. Which was so, so filled with typos and badly expressed stuff. So for days I've been writing stuff like page 26, paragraph three, line nine, change wouldn't to never. You uh, know, yeah. anyway, so I've been, I've been doing that. <laughs> and then <laughs> we are going away for the weekend because we had not planned to have a, uh, a honeymoon until the spring. And, but we do dove into reality too quickly after the ecstasy of our wedding. And we decided to go away for a couple of days and just hang out. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing I'm doing is I'm writing a big article about politics, about how we got to January 6th. Yeah, and I'm, I'm basically starting from Ronald Reagan, who declared government the enemy. Right. To Newt Gingrich, who described the Democrats as evil. Yeah. To uh, a series of economic policies as even the Democratic Party turned neoliberal and, uh, you know, co coveted the money of the big banks and finance institutions. And the blue-collar urban and rural people got left behind. And my point is that uh, people don't shit in the Capitol because they love Donald Trump. They shit in the Capitol because the system has let them down. Yeah. So I've been writing. Maybe I'll submit it to Rolling Stone or The Atlantic or something. Yeah. Larry Tribe, uh, Lawrence Tribe, is going to vet it for me and read it. Yeah. And um, – so that's the, let me see, what else am I doing? Uh, that's I'm good. playing the guitar a lot. I'm studying ah. with a guy trying to learn how to play lead for the last five years. 
Oh. And um, I'm, th- I'm thinking of resurrecting a book that I wrote once that my publisher didn't want to publish. It's called Lies We Like to Believe. Mm. And each chapter heading is like a phrase like, we love our children. And then the chapter <laughs> is like a litany of the pollutions we put in their food and the atmosphere, what we've done to the education budgets, how we've, you know, anyway, nuclear, cheap, safe, and green. There's a whole there's 12, 14 chapters. And I would have to hire somebody to redo all the research to make sure it's current. But that's a, that's about it. And then I'm studying to uh, putting together a curriculum. I transmitted one of my students who's going to be taking over the Sangha, a man yeah. named uh, Richard Lobley, mm-hmm. who studied in Paris for 20 years and is just a natural. He loves it. He's calm. He's helpful. He's a priest by nature. And then we are, we've got three students that want to take Jukai and three that we agree are ready for lay entrustment, mm. which is, you know, Mel Weitzman's Green Rock Sioux program for people that don't want to be priests. But so we're working out a curriculum for them, what they should know and yeah. how to run a small group. And so they could make little satellites and things like that. Wow. So that, I think that's pretty much the totality of it. Really? Well, uh, <laughs> you're always fully engaged. I really appreciate it. Uh, that is great. Uh, yeah, that is heavy. Now, uh, your lineage comes through Lou Richmond, right? Well, actually, to be, to be precise about it, my lineage actually comes through Mel Weitzman, who did not take transmission from Richard Baker. And he left, and Lou Richmond left. And Mel Weitzman went to Japan and got transmitted from Hoitsu, right. Suzuki Roshi's son. And then when Lou came back, he, he burned his silks and everything he had done with Richard Baker and went out and started a software business. And when he came back and decided he wanted to re-enter like Buddhist practice, he received transmission from Mel. Uh-huh. So basically, the my lineage is Suzuki Roshi to Hoitsu to Mel and the Berkeley Zen Center. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. To Lou. To Mel, to Lou, to oh, you. Oh, through Lou, yeah. Yeah. Exactly right. Right. Uh, and uh, so uh, Lou was uh, – Lou and uh, – Ed uh, Sanderson did the Vimala Sangha. Is that still going? Yes. Well, I don't know now because Ed is moving. I think he's moving to Enso Village. Uh-huh. You know, Enso Village is this Zen Center retirement home and that they partnered with the Quakers. And Ed Sanderson has done, Ed Sanderson and Susan O'Connell, O'Connell have done yeoman's work. Yeah. Raising millions and millions of dollars to get this built in concert with a Quaker group that builds retirement centers. And I've actually visited one of the Quaker group centers in Santa Rosa, and it's completely charming. Everybody has their own apartment and little gardens and back spaces. So uh, Ed was transmitted by Lou, Ed, Peter Shearson, Al Tribe, Karen Geiger, and me. Uh, Karen died and Al died. Peter mm. Shearson decided his family could only support one Zen teacher. Right. So he's not doing that. And Ed went back to Zen Center. But yes, the Sovimala Sangha has been running classes and up to a couple of months ago, I knew it was still operative. I'm not sure about right now. Huh? 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 And what's the name of your Sangha? Wild dog Sangha. Ha 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 ha. That's great. That's great. Um, it's got a little coyote footprint logo. Hmm. Hmm. It, it, does it have a physical, uh, place? Well, yes and no. I, there was a, when I bought my little farm in Sebastopol, there was a little outbuilding that 
was a grow house for weed growers here. Mm-hmm. It's about, I'd say it's about 16 by 10. And uh, I stripped it down to the gunnels and I put in, I think it holds uh, six or eight tatami mats. And I had a little altar built and, uh, you know, had it wall, had it, uh, put in, um, sheetrock and painted it and put little lights in it. So that's where I do jukai ceremonies and transmission and stuff like that. But most of my sangha is actually on Zoom. Yeah. Because I have a student, I have a student in Atlanta. I have another one in Florida. I have one in, uh, two in Berkeley, uh, well, let me see, two in Berkeley, one in San Francisco who's moving to Thailand. Mm. Um, so basically this sangha was put together, uh, by, um, f- from my Dharma talks that I did during the pandemic from 20, March 2020 to March 2021 that uh, Judy Gilbert actually pulled a bunch of people together from the most interesting letters and comments that they wrote. It was a little bit of a surprise to me. And mm. um, it didn't it didn't actually work out, but uh, a number of the people stayed and, and formed another sangha, which is basically sort of a women's group in Sausalito. And I've been meeting with mine for the last several years. We meet Monday nights. And we come together for ceremonies, but it's it's a little arduous for people to come from Atlanta and Florida. Yeah, know, so. yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, I I think there's uh, a lot of strength in not being chained to a place, especially in modern times when your places cost so much. Uh. <laughs> yes, that's true, and that's uh, you get the kind of tail wagging the dog where the you know i remember at zen center when um the tasahara bakery was in full swing the students who were getting up at four in the morning to bake bread didn't have time to sit yeah 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 so so that's not not so good for them yeah yeah um it was uh, a, a good experiment and um uh <laughs> It, um, you know, it, it had its, uh, life. Uh, the, the businesses, the Zen Center businesses were an interesting yes, exactly. period. Um, and, um, um, an instant what? It was a, an interesting period, uh, where, you know, Richard Baker, uh, oh, yes. Got so much, uh, going there. Um, and, um, you know, the Zen Center has just kept evolving and changing. Uh, you know, I hear a lot of complaints about it, and I have my own complaints. But uh, when I just tell people, well, just wait. It'll evolve <laughs> into something else in a while. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, you have to give it. I, my book, Vernacular Zen, is in some way a reaction to what I call the Japanese-mo of dead cent- of Zen Center. Yeah. But it's never without appreciation. I mean, I changed more in my eight years there than I ever have since, and I'm completely <laughs> grateful. But I think that there are some inherent problems in too close an imitation of Japanese culture in America. Yeah. And one of the problems that I'm trying to overcome with my book is that it tends to keep the practice of Buddhism as foreign. Yeah. So what I'm trying to do in this book, it's called Zen in the Vernacular. What I'm trying to do is loosen the Japanese gift wrapping, not get rid of it, just loosen it a little yeah. so that it's a little easier for people to see the actual gift of the Buddha and then explain those gifts in kind of colloquial American speech and those states of mind as human states which a number of people have probably, I know, have experienced. Yeah. Um, you know, I've known women who disappeared into their knitting or machinists who disappeared into their work. And it doesn't have to be called by a Japanese name. It's not a bad idea, but 
I wanted people to know that these are not exotic, that the Buddha wasn't Japanese. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Um, yeah, yeah, that's true. And um, also the uh, the emphasis on uh, priests and being a priest in Zen Center. Uh, yes, as a promotion. It's become a promotion instead of an act of service. Yeah, yeah. And and uh, uh, I think that the balance be- between I, I think that the 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 lay path uh, is uh, should have just as much status, you know, uh, and you know it does in the mind of most of us. But uh, that's always something that 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 balance needs to be looked at. And, uh, right. Well, that's why. So, for instance, when I transmitted um, Richard Lobley, mm-hmm. I gave him a brown robe. Because my own my own uh, practice is a little unorthodox compared to Zen centers, and I didn't want him to have to answer any odd questions. But from this point on, both for Jukai and both for priests ordination and transmission, we're going to green robes and roxus mm. just just to establish a very clear delineation for lay practice. Yeah. And do you remember you remember Tia Strozer? Oh, very well. Yeah. So Tia left and she started the Brooklyn Zen Center. Yeah. And she's she's ordaining lay priests. I mean the the role of a priest is to care for the sangha. Why does it have to be monastic? And she's actually transmitted one woman, a very brilliant woman named Pam Weiss, who uh is a lay practitioner. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She may be the only one I know of that's literally transmitted. So, uh, you know, are, my first are, wife, uh, Diane, Diane Goldschlag, got uh, lay entrustment or whatever it's called from Tia uh, a year ago uh-huh. or so. Uh, she Was she got, at Zen Center or in Brooklyn? Oh, D- Diane, she's in Spokane. Oh, I see. Well, I work a lot with Tia. Um, one of the things I've been putting together from Tia and um, uh, who's the who's the head of Berkeley Zen Center now? Um, uh, um, Alan Sanaki. Right. Uh, is I've been assembling like their ideas of what training and curriculum for a lay entrustment should include. Um, because I think that most Buddhist practice in the United States is really a lay practice. That's right. And one of the one of the problems with the with the cross pollination of Japan and America is that you know a Japanese priest, a Japanese guy goes to a, a temple and he trains for two or three years, and then he leaves and he takes over a temple. And he or she spends the rest of their life in service. Yeah. Well, there are no temples to take over in America. So these people stayed at Zen Center. Yeah. And all of a sudden, after 20 or 30 years, Zen Center was responsible for them. Yeah. And I kind of equate it to actors who went to acting school and loved it and stayed on. But they they didn't quite understand that you're not an actor till you get a job as an actor. Yeah. And you're not really a priest until you're taking care of a group of people. Yeah. So we're all working that stuff out. It's all so far, it's very friendly and and not competitive at all, but that's the direction me and mine are going in. Yeah. 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 Well, that, um, uh, that is uh, a subject uh, that I think about a lot. And I think you're dealing with it uh, really well. Um, say, where, where did your spiritual path start? I mean, where would you put it? How far back? Well, really, really early. I mean, I can remember, um, seeing a robin for the first time and distinguishing it from the background 
like it was heavily outlined in ink. And it, it just struck me as a miraculous, self-evident creature, creation. Mm. As I got a little older, I came under the tutelage of my ranch foreman, who used to be a game warden, <laughs> fighting the egret hunters in Florida to protect the egrets from the uh, milliners, Italian milliners, killing them for their feathers. And he was a deeply spiritual guy without any gobbledygook. And when I was 10, he gave me a book called Kinship with All, with All Life. And it was about a guy who was dog-sitting, this movie dog named Strongheart. And he became so under the influence of how intelligent this dog was and how gifted it was that it opened up his sensibilities until finally he was able to get houseflies to jump from finger to finger. He could communicate with everything. Mm. So when I was about, so I sort of had this feeling about life and awareness that dogs had awareness, people had awareness, and especially with mammals, you know, the, the mammal brain is like a gland for producing images. And when we train a dog, I have two dogs, when we train a dog, we think we're teaching the dog a word. I think what we're doing is we're transmitting an image to the dog and associating it with the word. Mm. So when I was about 14, I started reading the beats and all these guys were talking about Buddhism. So I started reading Buddhism, whatever I could find about it. And it just seemed to be it just seemed to be the way I saw things, that everything was connected. And it seemed pretty obvious that if there was no sunlight and no water, nothing would exist. If there were no microbes in the soil, there were no pollinating insects. But I didn't know anything about practice. And then when I came out here for graduate school in San Francisco in uh, 64, around 66, I met Gary Snyder. And I thought, wow, well, if anybody knows what this Zen stuff is about, it's going to be him. He lived for nine years in a Japanese monastery. He was the assistant Anja to the teacher. He married a Japanese wife. He writes and reads Japanese. So he and I became really good friends, and I consider him my first teacher, really. And when I took um, Jukai... Uh, he signed the back of my first Roxu along with Lou. Lou left space for him. Oh. So it, was, it wasn't until I came to Zen Center in 74 and started going out with Marilyn McCann that I was ever introduced to sitting. I didn't really know what that was about. Hmm. And I did not take to it particularly <laughs> readily after 10 years of absolute anarchic freedom in the counterculture mm -hmm. the idea of like you know I, I had long hair I, I wore my long underwear into the zendo I didn't know one end from the other I thought I was just there to polish up my enlightenment a little bit and who were these squares <laughs> uh, it, it really snapped me up and called me to attention and uh, I stayed there for almost eight years but like a layman because I was working for Jerry Brown so, you know, and I had then when I was 39, so in 74, I was uh, I was 33. When I was 39, I started taking a gamble for the movies because I needed to make some money. And um, so I, I had to do my Zen practice in between running off to make bad TV and mm, a couple of good films. Hmm. Hmm. Um, I, I remember you, uh, at Zen Center way back then, 74 and 75, I was at Tassar, and I'd come in some. I remember you back then, and, um, uh, I, I, I remember seeing you at, uh, Magic Theater, right? That's right. Yeah, that's. When I decided to go back to try acting, I'd been an actor in college and I'd been an actor in the actor's workshop in San Francisco when I first came. When I made the decision to try it again, 
I did two years of plays back to back at the Magic Theater. Right. To kind of get in the swing of things. And I started teaching an acting class at the UC Berkeley Extension in San Francisco. Mm. And that got my juices rolling again, reminded me what it was about. And then uh, I I dove into Hollywood and I figured out a way to get an agent. And um, I got lucky. I, I turned out that I was slightly older than the current crop of leading ladies. And they were feeling self-conscious about their age. They were getting close to their sell-by date in Hollywood terms. And um, so they wanted to be seen with an older guy. So that worked for a while until they decided it was hipper to be seen with a younger guy. Right. But right. then I was I was already in and operating. Right. I remember uh, talking to you on the corner, uh, and maybe you were living straight up, up above uh, the the grocery store, you know, catty yeah, corner from the, the third city center. Uh, and yeah. uh, you you showed me, you said, hey, Look at this. You said, you told me, you said, I, I've decided I, I, I have to take a, a step beyond just doing all this free acting in, uh, you know, these plays and stuff. And you showed me your resume and picture, one picture of you with a guitar and some pictures. And I, you were just starting out to do that. And you'd gotten an yeah. agent. And I thought, oh, that's neat. I wonder how that'll go. And um, uh, anyway, I I I still remember that uh, quite well. Uh, when a hundred a hundred and sixty films later, I retired a few years ago when my kids were out of grad school, debt free. You know, I became an actor. Really, it sounds crazy, but I became an actor because I didn't want to write for money. The thing that's really sacred to me was writing. Mm. And I'm an okay actor, but I'm not Daniel Day-Lewis. I'm not Sean Penn. I'm not Robert De Niro. And I kind of knew that. And I was exceedingly lucky to have as long a career and everything as I did. But I always felt a little bit out of place. I didn't have time. If I had been younger and had the money, I would have taken my family to London and studied at the Royal Academy or lambda or something but i couldn't i was already i got my sag card at 39 and my dad had died below broke there was nothing at all from my family and i'd spent 10 years in the counterculture instead of you know making a living so i just had to accept that and Mm. i did it until i didn't have to do it anymore and now i do voiceovers because i you know all the ken burns films and things because i don't have to leave home i just saw you in uh the uh, Sunseed, the journey. Uh, and, oh, really? Yeah, because yeah, I helped Amartat Cohen uh, with the Zen Center part, and uh, you know he had a lot of questions. He lives in Malaysia. He just he's coming here in January. Um, anyway, that was neat. I went, you know, when whenever. <laughs> Whenever uh, I hear you or see you, you know, go, hey, there's Peter. Um, and that was neat. Yeah, well, you know, you, yeah. you and Dan Welch, you and Dan Welch were about the, the first normal people I met at Zen Center. I mean, <laughs> like, you know, guys, guys I would live with and hang with. And then as I relaxed a little bit and saw who people actually were, well, I made more friends. But from the jump, it was you and Dan Welch. Huh, huh. That's that's. Uh, are you still in touch with Dan? I certainly am. That's wonderful. That's he, wonderful. He's a bit of a recluse. Yep. And he confessed to me that he didn't really care that much about Buddhism. Yeah, what he right. cared about was the aesthetic. Ah. Uh-huh. And he's making these beautiful lamps out of twigs, and he's made these Japanese gates, and whatever he does is just beautiful. I yeah. love Dan. Dan has always been an artist. Uh, and he's always had a sense of style. He's sort of made an art out of the way he does things. Uh, yeah, you bet. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, he, he said, gave me a gift when I got when I got transmitted. He made me a beautiful painting of Avalokiteshvara with some 
writing and, you know, this great handwriting he has. But he also made me a brown Roxu with a, a, a howling coyote on the back of it. Oh, my God. <laughs> that is amazing. That is my favorite. That yeah. is amazing. Ah, ah. Well, um, I remember you giving an acting class sort of a presentation uh, because a class would have to keep going on and on. But you might have kept going on and on at Zen Center. But I remember either you brought Peter Berg in or you were – did you bring him there or were you just talking about his – oh, God, what was it called? Peter Berg. Planet Drum. Yeah. And – Planet Drum and Bioregionalism. I was probably talking about it. Yeah. Uh, But you were – there is a story about the classes. I wrote a book. I don't know if I sent it to you. It's called The Lone Ranger uh, and Tonto Meet the Buddha. Yeah, I went over the and, whole book with you. <laughs> oh, good. Okay. So for 40 years, I've been running these classes where I use um, meditation and then a whole bunch of improv exercises to soften people up. And when I put a mask on them and hold a mirror up in front of it, the character that they see in the mask will take over for around 10 minutes and they'll have 10 minutes of freedom free from self-consciousness, self-doubt, anxiety, anything. And then by the time I've given them three different masks and repeated that, and they found three different characters in their psyche, they're ready to hear Buddha's discussion of no fixed self. So it's the way that I was able to combine my Buddhist practice and my acting practice. Now, and it's been fun. That that was the book about uh, the the Lone Ranger uh, meets what? What's it called again? The Lone Ranger and Tonto meet the Buddha. Those were alternate chapters in the book, right? About the Lone Ranger and Tonto being lost on the desert, right? Out of work and fat and out of shape and. They see this little Asian guy camp there and uh, they run over and he jumps up and he takes such good care of their horses that the Lone Ranger decides he must be the highly trained servant of a wealthy man and that maybe they'll hang out there a while and see if they can get a loan to get back to L.A. And, of course, the Buddha reads the whole thing. And just like Milarepa's teacher, he sucks them in with the idea of some hidden treasure and gets them building a stone house and this and that. And eventually each one has their own, teaches them to meditate. They have their own Kensho experience. And Tonto goes back to his Mohawk people. And uh, at the end of the thing, the Lone Ranger and Tonto, uh, Lone Ranger and uh, Buddha are walking off. The Lone Ranger says, did you ever think about show business? (laughs) It's great fun. Yeah. You know, I spent about a week on that book. but uh, and with that, and then that was the book about masks, right? That's right. Yeah, that's All right. right. Uh, yeah, that was really that was interesting. A, that was a crazy bastard of a book. I'm amazed that it got published. But this book, Zen uh, and the Vernacular, was a kind of way to talk about an attempt to talk about Zen practice practice and liberating it a little bit from oh Japanese hierarchies and Japanese authoritarianism and some of the high Episcopal stuff that Richard Baker added into it I think because he found it easier to ask for big money if you know he had this really impressive dignified scene because what Lou told me was that you know when Richard Baker had a beard and Suzuki Roshi was going to transmit him. He said, well, I'm not going to be a priest. And I'm, you know, he was like a hippie. That's right. So, but, but that changed. Right. Right. That's true. That's true. He didn't want to do it. He didn't, he'd been in, he was in Japan three years. You know, he really, he's the co-founder of Tassahara. And I don't, I don't know if there'd be a Zen center now if he hadn't been there all along, but, then in 68, in the fall, he went to Japan and he didn't come back till the fall of 71. And, uh, I did a podcast with a guy named, very interesting guy named David Kubiak, uh, who, who knew Dick 
in Japan in that period. And he said he was the coolest guy. He said to me, he was just the epitome of Zen, you know. He said, and then David uh, visited him. Uh, I think I helped arrange it at um, Green Gulch. And uh, they had both had these main connections, very close main connections. And David said, he said to Dick, he said, what's happened? You've become an Episcopalian. <laughs> uh-huh. Just like you just said. <laughs> That's what I called it, High Episcopal Zen. Yeah. Well, it was, um, it, it, it was one of the phases of Zen Center. It seemed like the yes, only thing exactly. in the world, you know. I call it the imperial, no, it, the imperial era. Yeah. It's, I mean, you know, when I look at all the changes I've been through, why should I deny uh, Zen Center its changes? Right. And it was a lot of fun for me anyway. Yes, without a doubt. And it felt Richard Baker had a knack of making things feel special. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. You know, he, I mean, he made Zen Center feel like the coolest game in town. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. And after him, it moved more into the uh, institutional uh, uh, phase. Uh, I think so. And, you know, I, I'm a little disturbed that all the old hands, the people that literally knew Suzuki Roshi, other than maybe Reb and Paul Haller, they're all gone. Paul didn't. Zen Paul Center was after. Oh, he was. Okay. Well, yeah. I mean, they they asked Ed Brown to leave. I couldn't believe it. Yeah, <laughs> I know. You know, I, I mean, know. he gave the rights of his book. He gave Zen Center over a million dollars from that book. Yeah. Richard Baker made him sign the rights over. Yeah. And he asked me to come and represent him to argue against Zen Center throwing him out. Uh, I guess they just co- couldn't take his, you know, emotionality, but it right. didn't bother me. Right. I have a whole section on cute.com about that. Uh, oh, <laughs> really? I'll have to look that up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, you know, with a lot of uh, comments and, well, you know, uh, you know, one problem with the, and institutions these days is they're all gun shy. They're, they're shy of, uh, being sued, of, uh, uh, of hurting people's feelings, of making them feel uncomfortable. That's really what the thing with Ed got down to. A woman felt uncomfortable I, about some very innocent things, he said. Um, I know it's crazy. It was, he didn't, I mean, she asked him which bathroom she should use as a trans person. He said, I don't know. I don't know anything about that. Use the one you want. And I guess she felt she was being dismissed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, it's something like that. Any, uh, anyway, it, it, um, uh, uh, and well, and then you see, then they wrote him a letter. We've gotten another letter of complaint about you. And there's a, and he, and Ed's emotional. He got angry. And they said, well, if you're going to get angry, yeah. then you can't come back here and you get more. And, um, I have one letter in that section about this is a classic case of uh, administration intimidating employees. You, you, you disagree with us. You're ostracized. Uh, yeah. Well, they did that. I couldn't believe it. Yeah. Honestly, they did that, David. But again, that, that could be looked at as a phase. And, and the funny thing is, I don't know if it's funny. The interesting thing is, that if you look at each person involved in this, they're all good people. It's a problem getting authority and power and being an institution and, and trying to hold on to your empathy for other people and your broad mindedness. Uh, it sort of pulls you into wanting to serve the institution. And that's what happens with institutions. They serve themselves. Uh, well, I completely understand that. I mean, what I felt, quite frankly, was that they were protecting the brand, that the, the institution, to some degree, had become a brand, and uh-huh. they had to worry about protecting it because the livelihood of a lot of people depended on it. But this was one person who got exercised. Yeah. And I guess what I what I felt from this meeting was, 
that there were some people who who had maybe long-standing grudges about things Ed had said to them at some time or another, and this was maybe the time when they, you know, settled up. Huh. I, I don't know. That's what I felt. Uh, um, uh, I don't want to name names or go oh, into no, it too no. deeply, but no, I was I was disappointed, but I tried my best to speak up for him. Yeah. Well, Ed is an open book. You know, uh, he 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 lets it all out, and uh, it's just so different. Uh, you know, people there are, are people in. Zen teachers, uh, or you know, people of authority in general, are more controlled and more control their uh, their face, how they are seen. And Ed will sob and get angry and and confess. Uh, he's <laughs> he's yeah, really something. Uh, and and he's so creative. Well, whatever he is, is he's authentic. I yeah, just put it that way. Boy, is he. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, well, um, um, you go back. I want to, I want you to list the books you've done and. Okay. Uh, uh well, well, of course, I, of course, I, I, re, I remember the first one very well, but, but you say it. So the first book was a kind of study of the radical anarchist left during the 60s, and it was called Sleeping Where I Fall, and it was huh. put out on CounterPoint. CounterPoint published it. That's a good publisher. It was a great, yeah, a great house in Berkeley run by Jack Shoemaker. Then the second book, that was came out in 1999. Well, I want to say a little more about Sleeping Where I Fall. It also okay. tells a great deal about you and your life and just who you are. And anyway, it's, it's, uh, uh, you're also, uh, you're, you're not hiding anything either in it. Uh, <laughs> no, I feel if you're writing a book, you better tell the truth. I yeah. Mean, you know, it's going to come out. Yeah. So the second the second book is called The Rain Man's Third Cure. Right. And it's it's about mentors and teachers. Uh you know, people that were important in my life, people that taught me right deep lessons and in every place and arena of my life there was some kind of key man or woman that was a a teacher. And uh, then again, there's a lot about me woven into it, but the point of both books is more like I'm the thread that the pearls are threaded on. It's not to say me, me, me. It's to give you a reliable narrator yeah. and to tell you what, what was going on. Yeah. Then the third, the third book was, um, this book, The Lone Ranger and Tonto Meet the Buddha. That's on inner traditions. That's a slim little book about the mask workshops and Buddhism and using improv and masks to teach liberated states. Then the fourth book was my first book of poems called The Tongue of a Crow. That's by, um, mm. that's by Four Way Books in New York. I'm working on my second book of poems. And then the, the fifth book was actually two books. But the publisher put them together, and it's called Zen in the Vernacular. Right, and that's going to be out. That's going to be out in March of this coming year, yeah. twenty twenty-four. And I spent a week with those books too. Uh, yes, thank you. You gave me a blurb, which I'm so appreciative about, David. Yeah, um, I really hate giving blurbs, but uh, it it worked, and <laughs> uh, it's. I feel so I'm much. I'm a blurb whore. Uh, I like to I like to help people. If I like the book, I'm a blurb whore. If I like the book, I'm giving you a blurb, man, because authors need it. Yeah, but I'm I I uh, I'm not a good reader. I'm a very slow reader, and and uh, uh, I I'm you know sort of insecure. Am, am I am I doing justice to it? And this and that. Um, uh, Oh, get over it. Yeah, I did. I, loved, I did. I love the blurb. Yeah, 
I did, but it, it, uh, I, you know, I put a lot into it. Uh, I took, I took it very seriously. And I think the idea of putting them together is good. I think that was the right thing to do. Well, the one book was about, you know, kind of the practice of Buddhism. And the other was how to practice in the world as a Buddhist. Right. Like there's a lot of political stuff in it. How to, how to move through the world and in the political world without creating the problems you're trying to solve. Right. Without surrendering to rancor and judgments and divisive thinking. And so, but they, they wanted to put them together. So I was not going to complain. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, smart. Uh, and you know, what, what, one thing you're in terms of your political comments, and it's more than just political. You're saying, you're saying that you, you, that this is part of your practice. You know, you can't turn your back on the world. And these are the things you think are important for us to keep our temple clean. Uh, and, uh, one thing you point out, I think is so important is it's being, uh, heaven, if we could do it, it would be a miracle is to get money out of politics. But wow. Yeah. You know, Jerry Brown, uh, came over to have coffee. He likes to argue with me. And uh, he, he was a mentor and he taught me a lot. And I think because I didn't try to capitalize on our relationship or go into politics, he had a lot of respect for me. And he came over and I told him about my three-step program to really diminish the authority of money in our electoral system. And he said, well, that's absolutely right, but it's never going to happen. And he's, and he's probably right because our entire system is organized around collecting and dispersing money. And the news media makes money by, by keeping everything heated up and yeah. talked about like a horse race and a competition and a threat. And so it's just all woven into place. Everybody's making money except the urban and rural working people. And it's, it's dividing the country. There's no regulations on our social media. And these algorithms are making people think that the garbage they run into is objective fact. And we got 70 million people who voted for a rapist and a grifter and a guy who doesn't pay his bills and tried to overthrow the government. So yeah. We're in serious trouble. Yeah, we so are. I think we need people who don't lose their cool. And who can stay calm and stay, well, what would you think if you learned that this was true? Would that change your thinking? Well, there's some people that nothing is going to change, but there's others that would say, yeah, that would make a difference. Yeah, yeah. I think that's uh, a good way to look at it is not to lump them all together and say if we're talking about uh, people who would vote for Trump or uh, or vote for this, you know, for this, all these, all these ideas that are really against their the programs that are against their best interests. That there are some of them. There is a percentage that can be swayed. You can't just lump them all together and say we'll never get to them. Right. Uh, and you know you don't have to sway many, David. You only have to sway two or three percent. Right. Right. Uh, I mean, you know, one of my mentors in this book, uh, The Rain Man's Third Cure, was a quite a conservative Republican man, quite honorable, quite a wonderful guy. And, you who, know, he who? was a Republican. His name was Carney Hodge. Uh-huh. And he was the head of the American Symphony Orchestra League. And he was on the Arts Council along with me. He was the only Republican on the council. And he was uh, he was the person that when we were all shredding each other over a million-dollar budget, he said, well, listen, you're Jerry's boy. Why don't you tell him to put $20 million in the budget? See if you can convince him and give us something to work with. And by God, Gary and I went to see him, and he did. Mm. So, you know, I, I have no problem with Republicans like that. Oh, no, no. This was a stand-up man. When, when uh, I was working with the nuclear freeze, uh, a lot of our, uh, most, uh, active, uh, people, uh, were Republicans. I mean, our office 
was in uh, U.S. leasing, which was uh, uh, had a Republican uh, in owner, and uh, there were there was um, I I focused on on uh, communicating with uh, Republicans and uh, retired military people, and and bringing military people to conservative people to talk to them yes, about that, it. That was a good idea. Uh, and, um, yeah, uh, I just felt that was so important. And, uh, anyway, uh, that was a, a, a great movement that, uh, really united a lot of people. Unfortunately, uh, people are under the opinion that, uh, that danger has gone away. Jerry Brown is one of the people that realizes it hasn't. And, um, no, it's a great existential danger. Yeah. The fact that we're so, it's just by good luck we haven't had a nuclear disaster. That's true. I mean, it, I just can't believe that people just accept it as, uh, you know, a, a given. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and the, the very fact that they exist is what's enabling Putin to hold the world at bay. Yeah. And stop them from coming in and stopping his invasion of Ukraine. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's, uh, it, it's a, a threat that is imminent, uh, and immediate and is there all the time. And people think, people don't think about it. They think, oh, wasn't that taken care of? You know? And uh, well, what do you think about climate yeah. change? <laughs> yeah, well, that's the other existential threat, you know. And I don't know. Everybody is so invest. My father told me in 1970, the winter of 69 and 70, he came out to Olima, and he spent time at Olima. And you know, he, he most of my life we didn't get along very well. I think he was afraid I was an idiot and that I needed to be toughened up. So I, I, we didn't get each other. Uh -huh. But he came out to this commune and he really, at one point, he was stoned. He was sitting there at a table with two Hells Angels, popping second alls and drinking whiskey. And uh, he said, you're a better man than I am, son. And I said, what are you talking about? He said this, and he pointed to the room. And it was a shambles. We were all trapped inside in the the blizzard rains of 69 and the place was unkempt and kids were crawling around and it was a mess. I said, dad, this isn't even a dress rehearsal. He said, no, but you share what you have and you take care of each other. And he got it like that. Mm. And so I said, well, how about a little advice? I could use a little advice. And he passed out at the table. And then about two minutes later, he sat up straight, and this is what he said to me, almost word for word, and it's in the book. He said, son, capitalism is dying of its own internal contradictions, and I ought to know I'm one of them. Mm. The people running it don't give a shit about you, your children, or their own children or grandchildren. They've paid their dues, and they want to get what's theirs out of it. They're going to sell everything that's not kneeled down. Do you think it's going to collapse in five years? It's going to take 50. So you need to hang in for the long haul. You need a plan. You need to keep your head down and take care of your family and your kids because it's going to be very bad. And, you know, that 50 years was up about this year. Hmm. Hmm. So, and I've seen nothing in all the intervening years to contradict anything he told me. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, um, I'm, I'm happy though to see how positive you are in your actions. And, uh, it's sort of like we, we do what we can, uh, you know, it's like it's like St. Francis was asked. Uh, he was raking or sweeping or something. No, he was hoeing, and he was asked, 
What would you do if you, you were told the world was going to end in 10 minutes? He said, I'd keep hoeing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, there's the look in, there's the look in the mirror factor. You know, you can either put yourself to sleep, keep your head down. My feeling, I have a, I have a, this little practice I call radical optimism. And it's based on one incontrovertible fact, which is that we never know how things are going to turn out. That's right. So based on that, I can say, as long as I keep my shoulder to the wheel, there's a chance things can break my way. And it's like buying a lottery ticket. The odds may be long, but there's a chance. And the only way I can keep my shoulder to the wheel is by remaining optimistic and hopeful and in a good mood, because that's the way that I'm the most powerful. Yeah. If I give up, there's no chance that my agenda is going to come in. Yeah. So I call that radical optimism, and that's how I keep going. Yeah. Well, um, you know, uh, Suzuki Roshi said, um, well, I usually just call Shunyu Suzuki, because I don't want to use that word Roshi. But uh, he, he said... Um, that uh, he thinks there'll always be war, but we should always work to prevent it and end it. You know, uh, yeah. And and I recycle here, and uh, you too. oh, you know, fanatically, and uh, I go to centers uh, where you know, things are recycled. There's a lot of recycling going on with local people. There's uh, do-gooder recycling done by foreigners. Uh, but I tend to relate to, you know, the the poor guys that are going around picking up all the cardboard and plastic bottles. They can, and even even old people with bags right. walking, doing that. Are, are you are, are you in Ubud? No, no. We're, we, we live in, in Sabud, which is on the edge of Dimpasar. But uh-huh. and and, and uh, uh, I, I, I they don't separate trash here. And now now there are thirty one landfill fires going on in Indonesia. The 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 whole trash collection thing has, has collapsed here in Bali, uh, and um, it's it's they've known about it. It's exactly what you said. It's it's. There's no solutions because everybody should not everybody, but there's too many people that just want to get what they can, uh, and to heck with everything else. Uh, but I keep, you know, I compost and, uh, I, I, I've tried to get our, you know, we, we have a housekeeper tried to get her and, and people to separate the trash. But it's symbolic because it's not separated where it goes. <laughs> yes, I get it. Hey, David. Yeah. I see my wife has just come in and she's bringing my dinner in. Hey, but this is a good time to, uh, uh, to, uh, call it a day. I've really enjoyed talking with you. Uh, well, let's do it again. I could talk to you for a long time, but yeah, I want to eat my dinner now. <laughs> yeah, well, that's good. And I'll go have uh, a, a late breakfast. Uh, and uh, so, hey, thanks a lot, Peter. This has been great. You're really fun to talk with. I appreciate all the good you're doing and all that you try to do and how you have how you have woven uh, practice, Buddhist practice, but really just practice. It has no name <laughs> in into your life. Well, uh, I'm sincere about wanting to do a chapter two with you. So whenever you feel that you, you want to do that, I'm up for it. Well, let's give it a few months, huh? All right. Yeah. All right. Okay. I plan to be alive that long. Yeah. But if you want to do it earlier, just, just let Beth know. All right, David. Thank okay. Thank you so much, my brother. Yeah. Take okay. care. Great talking to you. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. So thanks a lot, Peter. Hey, now, we talked about doing another one at the end. So uh, I'm going to get hold of you and uh, see if we can schedule that. Not sure for when, 
but um, it will happen. So thank you very much. Thanks for everything you do. And um, until we meet again, I'm DC Booba of QC Audio and QC Archives coming to you from Sleepy Sanur with Doggy Bandita, Feline Manis. Yes, Doggett has gone back to her home. Her her people have come back from America, and uh, so we only have Bandi and Manis. And dear, lovely Katrinka, and we're wishing you and yours and all of us a grand awakening. Thank <music> you.